Well, we are going to continue in our series that we've been calling the Gospel According to Ruth. But before we do that, um, first of all, I want to dismiss children up through sixth grade for Children's Church. Uh, they have a great time. And uh, while they're heading off, let me just make a comment about next Sunday evening, six o'clock for the children's Christmas program. Uh, if you have kind of avoided that because you think, ah, oh, it's just a little thing for kids. It is a really fun night. And I just encourage you to be a part of that. The house is kind of full that night of, of lots of folks who are not normally here because it's their grandkid who's in the program or they got invited by a friend or whatever. And so come be a part of that. It's a great time and it gives you an opportunity to meet some folks maybe who you haven't typically met. And then following that, we head into our big journey to Bethlehem week. Lots is going on. If you saw more construction that's been happening, everything is coming together out there. It's really pretty amazing. And if you would like to be a part of it but haven't signed up to be in the cast or in some other way, and you want to just be a part of meeting people, you're good at being a host, you're good at engaging people, I would love to have you be what we call mingler, kind of a host around the campfires and the hot chocolate area. And you can talk to me if you'd like to be a part of that. And then, as, uh, as Annette mentioned, Christmas Eve, let me just reiterate, the 10 a.m. and the 4 p.m. service, it's the same service both times, and we'd love to have you be at one or both of those as we welcome the community to Christmas Eve. Well, we are in the third week of our series called The Gospel According to Ruth, which means we are in the third chapter of the book of Ruth. Ruth is this little book in the Old Testament, four chapters long. And we've been in this for our Advent season. Advent means the coming of or the anticipation or preparation for the coming of Christ, the celebration of the Christ child. If you wander over to our little stable scene over there today, you'll notice the manger is empty uh, because we are anticipating the arrival of the Christ child. And we have um, been discovering that this book of Ruth is really a metaphor, a picture, a, a pre-telling of the gospel. And so, uh, before we kind of get into it, let me just go ahead and read. Typically, we stand for the reading of God's Word, but again, I'm going to read the whole chapter to you of uh, Ruth, chapter 3, and if you've got a Bible with you, I invite you to follow along with me. It begins this way. It says, One day Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Now, if this is your first Sunday here in the season, let me just give you a quick uh, synopsis, a quick recap. Naomi was married to a man named Elimelech. Naomi and Elimelech had lived in a place called Bethlehem of Judea, but uh, they'd fallen on hard times. There was a famine, so they left that place. They went across the mountains over to the country of Moab. And while they were there, and, and along with their two sons, Malon and Kilian, and while there, Elimelech, died, leaving Naomi a widow. But then her sons also died, and so she was triple bereaved, thrice bereaved woman. Now, her, both her sons had married, and so as time goes by, she's there with her widowed daughters-in-law, and they have the opportunity to move back to their hometown, Bethlehem of Judea, where because the things are better again, the economy is moving, and so they're going to move back. But Ruth gives her, I mean, Naomi gives her daughters-in-law the opportunity to stay in Moab where they're from or to come with her. And so one stays and one comes. And the one that comes with her, her name is Ruth. Ruth is going to make a commitment to support and care for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so now they've settled back in and they're poor. They're in poverty. 
And the way they've been supporting themselves is that Ruth, the daughter-in-law, has been gleaning in the field of a man named Boaz. And as she's been there, she's been supplying or providing for her family. But we learned last week that there's an important relationship between this man, Boaz, and their family. He's what's called the kinsman redeemer, the one who's kind of obligated and authorized to buy back the family property for the sake of the deceased man, Elimelech. So that's your summary of the last two weeks. Um, Some of you are wishing that every sermon could be that short, but it doesn't work that way around here. Now, verse 2. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor. But don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down and then go and uncover his feet and lie down there and he will tell you what to do. Verse 5, I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Okay, put a bookmark in that. Let me just make a couple comments of what's happening here. Um, you can imagine uh, that the threshing floor, the place where they kind of thresh the grain, is, uh, is away from the village a little bit, a little kind of in amongst where the fields would be. So that makes sense that they would gather the grain there for the threshing. So Bethlehem, we even read later that, that it was away from the village. And so they're going to work hard all day. Now, why would they stay there for the night? Why would Boaz stay there? Well, you've got problems with thieves. You've got people who would steal unwatched un, uh, over a grain. We have that problem here in Fresno. And some of our uh, great uh, vineyards, um, I'm, I mean, raisin vineyards, I'm told that sometimes uh, we've had some theft problems. Guys will come up in a big truck, load up the harvested raisins, and take them off and sell them uh, in however they... You know, to think that there's a black market for raisins is a little troubling, but apparently there is. So be careful where you buy your raisins. That's all I'm saying. If somebody on the street corner is selling your raisins, just walk away. All right. Uh, that's free. And, uh, and then, so then you've got, so you've got this scenario where he's, he's going to stay with his, his product for the night. And many people have tried to read something kind of salacious, kind of scandalous into this approach of Ruth to Boaz in the nighttime. But I, I think you're over-reading it if you do that. Uh, it's, I mean, if you wanted to wake somebody up in the middle of the night without touching them, probably the best way is to pull the blanket off their feet. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and your feet are cold because you accidentally kicked the blankets off? I think that's all that's happening here. She wants to have a conversation with him when everyone else is asleep, everyone else is the picture, they can have a private conversation. I believe, really believe that's what's happening here. It's also not unusual for uh, a servant to sleep at the feet of the master. That's perfectly acceptable. So there is nothing untoward going on here as much as some commentators would like you to believe that there is. They're honorable people. All right, so let's pick it up at uh, verse 8. It says, around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over, and he was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth. She replied, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not 
gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. All right, if you've been following the romance of this story, here's where your heart kind of stops, like, oh no, no, they were supposed to get together. And now this other suitor is coming in the side door and he's going to snatch her away and, and, and the whole story is going to be ruined. No, they're supposed to get together. So, you know, it's like a typical kind of encounter you'd see in the movies or some kind of romance situation. But let's find out what's going to happen. Stay here tonight, he says, verse 13. And in the morning, I'll talk to him. If he's willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. I wonder if she got any sleep. I really do. I wonder, did she get any sleep? So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning, but she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. And Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. And he returned he returned to the town. And when Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, What happened, my daughter? And Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, He gave me these six scoops of barley and said, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And Naomi said to her, Just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. Stop there, and you've got to get the rest of the story next week. Go to come back for it. Well, let me make uh, just a couple comments about kind of the whole setup. As I said, we, in our highly sexualized, you know, Western culture, we have a difficult time not reading scandal into this story. But we have to kind of separate ourselves from that because we, we're in a different cultural time, different period. And so it's not a scandalous situation. Nor is this the prescription for dating habits. Um, gals, this is not how you get a guy. You don't sneak in his room and uncover his feet and wait for him to like wake up in the middle. Not, not how it's done. Descriptive, not prescriptive. All right. Uh, what hasn't changed is human desire and human temptation. So if you think, well, there's no temptation. No, that. Look, I'm sure there's emotions running high here. Uh, it's not necessarily a flirtatious situation, but it is kind of an intimate moment. But their actions show how honorable they were, these two. And uh, I, I would just say this, that our behavior behind closed doors matters. We don't always know when it's going to matter or how it's going to matter, but it matters. It, it really does. So... The shift in this story begins now when Naomi, Ruth's you know, widowed mother-in-law, she's pressing Ruth to approach Boaz for marriage and for you know, what she says, a permanent home. And Ruth had been determined to, carry, uh, to, determined to carry, care for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi, who had said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mara means bitter and the Lord has made my life bitter. That's what she called me. But now we see this switch in the story where... Naomi's not really acting like a bitter woman, is she? She has found a way to kind of deal with her grief and sorrow by reaching out and caring for her daughter-in-law. She's seeking the welfare and the good 
um, outcome for for Ruth. And it's a pretty marvelous thing. Also, you know, there's no competition or jealousy between these women. Um, And I think this whole thing paints a really amazing picture of how, you know, those of an older generation can be generous toward a younger generation to see them flourish, while the younger generation can be generous by serving. So in one direction, it's generosity from the older to the younger. The other direction is is service, kind of a serving attitude from the younger to the older. They really model that really, really well for us. But she's going to make it her task to get Ruth settled into a new life uh, at this time. Now, as successful as Ruth had been as a gleaner, going out in the field, picking up scraps, that was a short-term solution for, this, for these two women. So what would they have to do? Boaz could not properly take on uh, Ruth as a servant because they're related to each other. Because you might think, well, why didn't she just get a job working? It doesn't work that way. She's, she's related. So that has some limitations uh, and it would not be an appropriate thing. Ruth could just keep gleaning, working harder, longer hours, find more fields, just going for it everywhere. But you've got to remember this whole story is a metaphor or a picture of salvation. And salvation cannot be earned, even by working really hard, even by working more hours, even by just trying to do your best. You and I, we need a Savior to rescue us. And the only rescue for Ruth, and by extension her family property, the only salvation was for a redeemer to bring her into the family. And that's going to happen, spoiler alert, it's going to happen through marriage to Boaz. And it's the same image that the New Testament gives us, uh, particularly in Revelation 19, where the saints, we the church, are said to be the bride of Jesus Christ, the groom. When those, and we look forward to that day of that great marriage. So it's the same picture, Ruth to Boaz, as we, God's people, to uh, to Christ Jesus himself. Now, for the Jews, land and salvation are inseparable. You wonder why it was such a big deal this week that President Trump declared we are moving the embassy to Jerusalem. And, you know, as all the previous presidents have said they're going to do, this president said, we're, no, we're actually going to do get this done. And why it's causing a furor. Because for the, for the Jewish people, land and salvation are inseparable. So to lose the land is to lose the salvation, to lose identity, to lose purpose and value. So it's, it's in a way that we don't understand, is completely tied together. And it's particularly in these early generations of the Old Testament, you, you have generation after generation tied to that physical land of their, that their feet are on. So that's why this is so important. And um, Ruth and Naomi would lose their land if a man did not redeem it on their behalf. We, we're, you're going to learn in the next chapter that Naomi was about to sell the property. I don't know if it's to pay off debts or to try to get some money to support themselves. But she, and if she had done that, they would have almost been guaranteed ongoing poverty, uh, uh, the, the, the two women together. Now, verse 1 here in, verse, in chapter 3 says, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so you'll be provided for. New Living Translation that I read, New International Version, they translate that as, as a finding a permanent home. But the Hebrew language, and some of the other translations reflect this a little better, the Hebrew language says, find rest for you. She says, it's time I find rest for you. Well, what does that mean? Well, rest includes security, right? Includes 
salvation. If you think about this morning, this afternoon, some of you are going to head home and you're going to flake out on the couch like you do, like all good Christians do on Sunday afternoon. And, um, and uh, if you left your front door wide open and your garage door was open, you would not probably be able to fall asleep, would you? You would not feel secure to be able to rest. Rest and security are really closely tied together. Ever had that feeling you're lying in bed at night and you think, man, I heard a noise. I heard something. You can't fall asleep because you don't feel what? Secure. And then Hebrews chapter 4 does an amazing job of unpacking this idea that our eternal salvation, our, our home in heaven is rest. It equates rest with our eternal salvation. Let me show you this from Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 on the screen. It says this, So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world, right? Six days he worked, seventh day he rested. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. So that picture of rest is going to become really important in the story. Naomi knew that Ruth needed a rescuer. And she believed she'd found it in Boaz. But I would say that Ruth's predicament applies to you and me as well, because here's this. If you're taking notes this morning or you're using your outline, you can write this down. Every soul needs rest. Every soul needs rest, including yours and mine. Now, if you're familiar with the life and the teaching of Jesus, you're perhaps thinking about this <clears throat> fabulous thing that he taught. It's found in Matthew chapter 11:28. Where Jesus said this, he said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Verse 30 goes on to say, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Think about Naomi slinging those six measures of grain over her shoulder that night. I bet you that didn't feel very heavy to her, did it? She just felt like a whole new world had opened up to her as she was provided for and took on the burden of Boaz. Jesus promises you rest. Hopefully at at some point in your life you've had the privilege of, of listening to what I think is one of the greatest musical compositions of all time, Handel's Messiah. And if that's the case, you might your mind might be wandering right now and thinking about that soprano area a solo of right come unto me all ye that labor and so on and i will and he will give you rest some of you're going to look that up on your youtube right now to see what what is he talking about save it for at the end of the message um, it's a fabulous piece of music but it's a message that doesn't get old it doesn't change every soul needs rest not sleep Oh, I can see some of you need that as well. But, but rest. You need rest. You need to be set free of trying so hard to, to be good enough for God. You need to be set free from religious duty. Set free from working so hard with so little return. You need rest for your soul. And Jesus promises that. And Boaz is offering that. Because you can ignore it. You can deny it. You can avoid it. You can reject it. But your soul needs rest. Eternal rest. A permanent home. And only the Savior, Jesus, can offer you that rest. Now, Ruth 
would, in this story, move from making a living off the scraps of, you know, scrounging in the fields to the security of receiving an abundance from her Savior, her Rescuer, because of His great mercy and grace upon her. But I would say it's a step of faith. For sure, it's a step of faith. And I, I want you to picture this, right? So she's, she's dressed. Um, she's she's going to head out at night. She's been told to take a bath, to put on some perfume. A couple, some of the translations say, you know, put on your best clothes. Uh, it's a little bit difficult translation or word to work with. It might just mean overclothes or your, your heavier clothes. Because remember, it is nighttime and... And uh, she's going to spend the night in the barn. All those kind of pictures. But she's all dressed up. And she's heading out to a place that's all guys outside of the village at the threshing floor. Where they've been, you know, having a big dinner and and drinking. And some have maybe had a few too many beers. And it's kind of a risky situation she's putting herself into. But Ruth becomes an ideal picture of faith, and I want to give you an equation of what I think her faith is made of. What comprises her faith? Three things. Faith equals obedience, courage, and initiative. If you're, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Faith equals obedience plus courage plus initiative. Uh, Ruth was obedient to Naomi's instruction, her mother-in-law's instructions. She exercised the courage to, to go out even at the risk of her safety or risk of rejection, for sure. And then she took the initiative to ask for marriage. Because Naomi's plan wasn't exactly a complete plan, let's be honest. Naomi's plan is, you know, dress up, smell good, head over there, uncover his feet, and then see where it goes. Not really a great plan, I don't think. I mean, it sort of leaves it kind of open-ended, Right? But this idea of approach Boaz and then trust him from there translates for us as well. Because some of us want the complete plan before we'll put our trust in Jesus Christ. Well, God, I want to know how this is all going to work out. But you don't get a complete plan. It doesn't work that way. We put our trust in Jesus without knowing all the outcomes. I want to break down that equation a little bit more. First, back to Jesus' words in, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Three things. Obedience. Well, that's the come to me part, Jesus is. Jesus is telling you, come to me. He isn't actually saying, stay where you are, I'll come over your way. He says, come to me, approach me, and I will give you rest. That's, that's obedience. Uh, faith always begins with obedience, doing what Jesus says. And I wonder if you do that or if you know how to do that, right? Do, do, can you bring yourself to Jesus? Can you, can you come to the feet of Jesus? Can you slow yourself down to spend some time with him, to, to learn to listen, to hear what he has to say? You're doing that right now. You showed up this morning. Whether you, whether you wanted to or not, you're here. You're here to hear from the word. But we need to be able to come to Jesus. It starts with obedience. And then there's the courage piece. Courage is the, is the ability and the humility to admit, I can't do this on my own. I can't fix all my life problems by myself. I can't resolve all the issues I'm trying to work through. And so courage says, I will come to Jesus, even if it's unpopular, even if it's a little bit scary, even if my friends say, you're crazy, you're a religious nut, you don't know what you're talking about, why would you believe that old stuff? That's the courage piece. 
And then there's the initiative. Remember, Ruth had all three. She was obedient. She had courage, but she also took initiative. Because in that midnight conversation with Boaz, she didn't actually just wait for him. She took Ruth's or Naomi's instructions, and then she took the initiative to ask for marriage. That business of saying, cover me with the corner of your cloak, or the corner of your covering, or the corner of your blanket, that was an acceptable way of saying, I would like you to marry me. For all our discussion in that culture of how patriarchal it was, and how men had all the control and all the power, women had a certain kind of power as well, and this is one of the, ways, one of the things they could do. They could ask for marriage. Also, not necessarily in a recommended dating strategy, but sometimes it might be appropriate. Um, gals, if you're dating a guy who can't make up his mind, you need to ask what his intentions are. And if he can't give you an answer, move on. Um, so she's got initiative. And that blanket of Boaz is a is a picture of the righteousness of Christ that's given to cover you as well. So when I say, Jesus, I'm coming to you out of obedience and courage, and I'm taking the initiative to come to you, saying, Jesus, would you cover me with your righteousness? Would you make me whole? Right? We don't save ourselves. But saving faith requires some initiative on our part to say, Lord, save me, rescue me, bring me into your family. And, and Boaz could perhaps have said, well, listen, I'm your kinsman redeemer. You're going to marry me whether you like it or not. Because as a businessman, he could have been thinking, okay, so if I acquire that land, it technically isn't mine, but I'm getting all the crops off it. This could make me rich. He didn't do that. That's not the way he worked. And, and why wouldn't he? Because forced salvation is not the Savior's way. I, look, don't believe this nonsense when someone says, well, God's just going to save everybody in the end. No, no. Why would, why would God force salvation on people who don't want it? Why would, why would God say, I'm going to save you whether you like it or not? That would be the most unloving thing to do. God loves you enough to say, you don't have to be saved. It's up to you to ask for it. Think about that. Right? People say, a loving God would not let anybody go to hell. A loving God has to let people go to hell. He has to because he loves you enough to respect your choice, to trust him or not. So it's a powerful moment and it should be sobering for us. So Boaz isn't going to force his salvation on Naomi. And I, I want to make another comment about Naomi's nighttime visit here. Like I said, she's not out of line in this setting. She's not acting dishonorably. I think, in fact, she's saving face for Boaz by not confronting him in the day, daylight in front of his friends or in front of his workers. She is actually giving them the opportunity to say, Ruth, I'm not going to do that. I'm not interested. There's someone else that you can take care of that. Um, and he, she really would have saved face for him and, and for herself. So I think she's actually doing this in a really respectful way. Now, they could have just let their nighttime passions run wild in the barn. Probably nobody would have known what had happened, but it really would have ruined everything because Look, God's order of courtship and marriage and then sex is God's is the best way and it's the way God designed it for your benefit and for the benefit of future generations. Now, when we get that out of order, God's also gracious and can redeem any situation and he's incredibly merciful. But God's design and God's way is actually the best for you and for the generations 
to come. And so while we know that nothing, nothing happened there, Boaz knows that people love to gossip. So here's where Boaz is amazing. So he knows people are going to gossip if he sees them leaving at the same time or sees her leaving the barn. So he says, look, stay here long enough. Now, why would he ask her to stay? Because it's dangerous out there. He cares about her enough to protect her safety, to protect her well-being. And he says, but leave before dawn so no one will see and start gossiping. Now he's protecting her reputation. This is an amazing guy. He protects her physically and he protects her kind of emotionally, socially by, by taking care of her reputation. Pretty fantastic kind of approach that he takes care of uh, for her, physical and, and otherwise. And then Boaz, of course, had an important transaction to take care of the next day. And if, you know, if rumors had spread that he'd already slept with Ruth, that would have called off the whole thing. He would have been disqualified from what he had to take care of the next day. So let me make a couple comments to the young men and young women in the house tonight. Young men, I, I'll make this as clear as I can be, okay? Until you're married to her, her body is not yours. Until you're married to her, her body is not yours. Your job is to protect her in every way. And if you take advantage of her now, you disqualify yourself in some measure later. You protect her physically, emotionally, socially, sexually. You protect her. And young women, do not offer or ask or invite a boy to be intimate with you in a way that is going to disqualify him from treating you right. Right? He's not yours until you have both put a ring on each other's finger. That's the right way to do that. Because then the guilt-free sort of sexual pleasure of the marriage bond is worth it. It becomes worth waiting for. Now, if you've already gotten that out of order, like I said, God is so merciful and He's forgiving and He's gracious. But I'm telling you, you've got to be able to trust that God's way of doing things is for your best interest. And... The result is that both of them can talk freely about what happened last night. She can actually go home to her mother-in-law and spill all the beans. She doesn't have to kind of hide anything. So they're discreet about their encounter, and there's definitely time for discretion, but they're not secretive about their encounter. Do you see the difference? So they're not going to blab about it. They're not going to tell anybody what happened, but they can tell some select people openly without shame and embarrassment. It is really good to live without having to hide stuff, isn't it? All right. So Boaz then makes a comment that tells us that Ruth had options. You can see it in verse 10. What does he say there? He says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. Boaz exclaimed, You're showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Elsewhere, too, we're told that he's older than her. And so we know that Ruth had some options. She was not morally or legally obligated to fulfill that role of kind of the redeeming agent for Elimelech's property. Technically, that was Naomi's position. But Ruth, out of her kindness to the family, to kindness to her deceased uh, husband, her deceased father-in-law, she has taken on that role for the family. It's, it's pretty amazing. He's quite a bit older than her. And um, 
and, uh, and which means that for her to do this, she's going to have to marry a much older man. And that's a kind of generous thing on her part. We'll get more, more to that next week. But I want to finish the, the chapter with, with one more observation. And that's this. That the Savior's generosity awaits our faith. The Savior's generosity awaits our faith. You know, in chapter 2, we saw Ruth hard at work in Boaz's field. And he supplied for her needs by telling her workers, hey, pull extra stalks out of the, out of, you know, extra grain out of the stalks and, you know, leave behind. And, and Ruth, you can eat with my people and help yourself to the water. And, you know, he was generous in that regard, supplying for her, but he didn't give her the grain. She still had to do the work uh, for it. Pretty amazing. But now what happens? Now that Ruth has put her faith in Boaz, she's entrusted him to, for salvation. Do you notice the shift? What happens? That hard work of righteousness, of self-righteousness, is done. It's over. Because verse 15 tells us that he now sent her home with, it's very specific, six measures or six big scoops of grain that she puts into that overcoat, slings over her shoulder, and takes home with her. It What... Here's what I'd say about that. What you need from the Savior, or maybe even what you want from the Savior, right, may not be forthcoming until you've put your faith in Him. We may ask God to do something for us. God, I need a new job. God, I need an A on that final exam. God, I, you know, I, I, I need a spouse or, or whatever your requests are. But maybe you haven't put your faith in the Savior, asking for His supply before you've put your faith in Him, before you've trusted Him. And have you, I mean, because have you not seen how your own striving at things often ends in frustration? And how your decision to trust the Lord, to lean not on your own understanding, to, to acknowledge Him in everything, have you not seen how His guidance then leads your life? Because that's the promise that He has. But it starts by trusting. He wants to be generous, but it starts with our faith. We put our trust in Him so God can be generous with us because back in chapter two we might have wondered well why boaz is rich i mean he could just say look take a cartload of grain get it over to ruth and naomi's place she's like my cousin or something and just take care of it he could have done that and instead he lets her work for it well, in part, we decided it's because he's giving her the dignity of, of work and supplying for herself. But really, it's because he's not her savior yet. He's not her provider yet. It would have been inappropriate for him to take on that role because she had not yet entrusted her life to him. She hadn't come under his covering and protection yet. Remember, God does not force salvation on anyone. But now that we see she's put her faith in him as redeemer, he literally poured out generosity onto Ruth and by extension Naomi. He, he literally pours that out by, in the act of giving that barley. And it was a way of saying, you no longer need to worry about having enough. I'll supply for you as a promise. I wonder if you've put your faith in the Savior. Maybe you've attended church your whole life. Maybe today's your first time ever. Neither means you have put your trust in Jesus. He's a generous Savior, but He awaits your faith. Your faith, as we said, which in itself is a gift from God, is a combination of your obedience and your courage and your initiative.
And as you do that, your soul finds a place of rest, a permanent home, a place of permanent rest. And the Savior will make that happen once you have decided to trust in Him. In simple terms, we say it like this. Jesus, the Son of God who came in our place, we celebrate at Christmas, lived this perfect sinless life and went to the cross on your behalf and in so doing took all the punishment that we deserve to take on. And He offers us an exchange. He says, I'll take your sin if you'll take my life. Trust in my life. And then God raised him to life so that death and the grave are defeated once forever. But it's your choice, your decision to say, Jesus, I trust you to forgive my sin and to become the leader of my life. And I will follow you all my days. It's powerful. It's marvelous. It's, it's incredible. I wonder if there's areas in your life that you need to bring to him, where you've been striving, where you've been struggling, you've been trying to fix it, make it work. And the invitation is to say, Jesus saying, trust me. Where you say, where you show the initiative to say, Jesus, would you cover me with your righteousness? And I'm going to trust you as my Savior. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Lord, this has been a exciting story. It's a love story. It's, it's fun. It's dramatic. But it's so powerful to be reminded again that you offer to be our Savior, our Rescuer, because we cannot rescue ourselves. Lord, we know Ruth could have tried doing this for a long time on her own. She could have tried to make a way, but we know it would have ended in failure. Lord, we thank you for the picture of a, of a generous Savior that waits to be invited. He doesn't force himself in. Lord, we thank you for that picture of the rest that you offer. How, you, how even what you supply is, is not burdensome. Lord, we, we want to learn what it means to follow you. I just pray for any person here today who has not yet found the courage to put their trust in you. And I pray that today would be that day. To have the initiative to ask for your salvation. And Lord, for the person who is just struggling with not feeling at rest at all in these days, would you come to meet them in that place of need today? Would they be able to, to come to you with their heavy burdens and find rest for their soul in you? Lord, we love you. We thank you that your, your love is, is amazing for us, but your grace is even greater. And we thank you for it. We give you our praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.